prior to Planswell and then and then yeah sort of introduce us to how Planswell got started and then we can kind of go from there. Yeah absolutely. So uh, I've, uh, I've been coding since I was a kid. My mother was an engineer. Uh, she got me into it very young uh, and uh, went away after high school to do a couple years of volunteer work, decided maybe I didn't want to be an engineer in front of a terminal all day, uh, but uh, went to school for finance instead and jokes on me, like everybody's in front of a computer all the time now. Uh, but uh, I've flitted in and out of my own startups and consulting for other startups uh, occasionally as an employee, but mostly stay in the technology space, everything from web conferencing to social payments to uh, the very sexy funeral home industry. And, uh, and then, uh, oh yeah, social recognition. Uh, I've worked with some of the startups you've, you've heard of around town as well, uh, building their early platforms. And uh, I guess over the maybe since 20, 2010, 2011 or so. Uh, there's another entrepreneur I was working around, Eric Arnold. Uh, he was working on his own things. I was working on my own things, but we would uh, constantly uh, help each other out, whether that is advice or introductions, connections, criticism. Um, we were just had each other's backs. And, and then one day he said, Eric, I'm working on something new. Would you like to, to work on this together? I said, yes, uh, what are we working on? He's, he's just that sort of person that you just, you want to do everything with him. Uh, and then he started to lay out this, uh, this business that was the answer to like everything that I wanted. Um, I had, I had my finance degree, never actually worked in finance because I figured out very quickly that I did not want to work at a financial institution. And this was the answer to all the problems that I had seen. Um, so we spent the next four years building a company, uh, from two of us in a basement to, you know, a, a real business, uh, that was delivering financial services with absolutely what, what was in the client's best interest. And that sounds like a, an ordinary thing, like in any other industry, like, yeah, of course we're going to do what's in the client's best interest, but it's just never happened in financial services. Uh, and so, uh, I would, I would say it was a four year journey that was spoiled for purpose. Uh, like on a, on a weekly basis, I was saving lives and saving marriages. And, uh, it was just, uh, it was just a, a stunning way to, to spend your time. Nice. So, 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 so this other, your, your partner, Eric, what, like, what was the motivation for or the vision for this at the beginning yeah so he uh he was a growth marketer by trade like he uh he came up you know bringing on hundreds of thousands of signups for groupon uh making lots of money while in the basement in his underwear uh just uh figuring out what what gets people to click what gets people to to complete information what gets people to complete forms and uh when his wife went back to school, that meant he needed to get a real job. So he, uh, he applied to, to be a financial advisor with one of the, the big brokerages. And uh, starting on his first day, they told him, your job, Eric, your, your job is to get 300 clients. Like, you know, he just gotten 10,000 for Groupon last week. So like, by when? By the end of the day? By the end of the week? Like, you know, in your life. Like, that's the job. You get 300 clients in your life, you, that's a license to print money, that's your career. So he very quickly understood that like, this wasn't for him. <laughs> but he basically stayed around for a couple of years as an anthropologist, figuring out what makes people tick, uh, how, they, how they go about uh, their operation. He followed closely like, the top performers, people who were making seven figures in their own personal careers. Um, you know, what makes them successful versus everybody else? What's their process? Um, and it became very apparent that there's a pattern here, that this doesn't need to be delivered by someone who gets paid a million dollars a year and therefore can only serve people who have millions and millions of dollars. Uh, but you could actually systematize what they are doing and deliver it to, to everybody. And so that everybody could have the same quality of service. 
Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I think it's sort of the democratization of finance, financial advice or something like that. That's what, if I was writing about it, that's what the book title would be. Absolutely. Okay, <laughs> cool. Cool. That's neat. So, so, so you got sort of involved accidentally almost, but, 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 you know, what, like, how did you guys start talking about it and how did you start building something? Yeah, that, that's the interesting thing is that, uh, probably see the light in my eyes, like how passionate I am about this. Uh, this is a scenario where I married myself completely to somebody else's vision. You know, previous startups to that usually had been like my idea that other people had contributed to, but it was like my idea. But uh, you find the right calling in life, like suddenly like you can obsess about it, you can, you can dream about it, you can be compulsive around it the same way as anything else. Um, just before we continue, because like I really wanted to focus on uh, how to thrive as a startup in a regulated environment. Uh, Rakesh shared his story. I don't think there's a whole lot of regulation there. Uh, for Carol and Peter, what's what's your background? Uh, you're muted, Carol. Oh, yeah. Just unmute okay. yourself. And, there you go. Yes. Uh, in university, I studied uh, chemistry. Uh, but after I got graduation, uh, I only work in the uh, in my uh, in in my major about one year. Then I work as a government official, and then I work as futures broker. Uh, most of my career, I work in the uh, sales and the customer service uh, service um, as a uh, sales and customer service drive. Yeah, and then uh, I came to Canada in 2000, 2005. I started the business in 2012. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, and so you, basically you, I don't have much engineering background. But you, you and Peter have been working on this venture together for a while, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So tell us about that. What, what's, what's happening right now? Oh, um, from, from what perspective? Sorry. Well, just what's, what's the business? Like you're, oh. it's, light, it's lighting, right? You're, you're, you're developing new lighting technology? Uh, yeah, actually, um, so right now we're working, uh, our product line is uh, MG efficient LED lights. Uh, we have two lines. One is um, a standard products to supply to uh, regular uh, commercial and the industry market. We sell through distributors like electrical supply energy efficient uh, company. Uh, so that is uh, commonly used in uh, commercial and the industrial market. Another line we're developing is a uh, uh, designer line. Designer line is more like an architecture look. Uh, and the deadline, we, uh, our, uh, the way we go to market, we, go, we work with an uh, engineer, we work with uh, uh, architecture, uh, architect, we work with architects. So this way we will, but this is our new line. Nice, nice. And, yeah. and are you guys building any sort of digital, you know, assets or infrastructure or, or it's all it's all manufactured uh, product uh, right now it's all manufactured products okay. uh, Peter I don't know if I fully understand this um, uh, question if you feel anything you want to add just feel free to add Peter is there any, is there any software you know development behind the scenes in terms of you know the the product itself or your operations or anything? Not right like now. There, there may be in the future, there might be more, um, okay. there might be more sensors in our products, more controls, right. um, things being connected to phones, but as right. of right now, that's right. not where okay. we're at. Oh, I see. I, I, I try to, um, I'm not sure if I understand your question uh, completely. Uh, so uh, right now in our industry is, uh, that was about five years ago, is purely like hardware, hardware. But now it's more, uh, it's more um, uh, like integrated to ITO, mm -hmm. things of internet, and the control, like Peter mentioned, like controls, um, uh, sensors to uh, bring the product, to make the product more energy efficient. Right, right. Yeah, and in fact, uh, you, may not, you may have missed it when Rakesh was introducing himself, but, but he's, he's actually working on some, some, uh, some digital platforms and assets that uh, are working with some IoT uh, sensors and things like that. So oh, really? you guys actually may may have some synergies somewhere down the line. Yeah. Hey, Lee, you're hired. 
<laughs> I was going to approach Carol after. I, I Actually, yeah, Carol I mean, we just like, yeah, these peer peer groups are always, you know, sort of fertile grounds for connection. So, yeah. But anyway, Eric, if, back if to I you. may, Carol, uh, yeah, that was part of the motivation of why we did what we're doing with the building automation is that uh, we saw there was a lot of opportunity yeah. in buildings to make it smarter. Yeah. Uh, especially in a COVID environment, people want to be able to monitor and manage their buildings remotely. Oh, yes. Uh, and that's that's partly of what we're able to do with our uh, technology. Take analog and convert it into wireless and digital. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Cool. Yes, this is a trend. Yeah, yeah. Actually, and, and just as an aside, not to go too far into this, uh, Rakesh, but um, I'm working with another venture at Mars uh, that's doing uh, some, some uh, remote uh, property uh, monitoring uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, for particularly for insurance purposes. Yeah. Um, but that might be an interesting connection too. So um, yeah, we actually are working with Chubb and Sun Life. Uh, okay. So insurance is a big piece of this. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Cost okay. avoidance, right? Yeah. So back to you, Eric. We were we were going to talk about uh, sort of the how you started things in a in a regulated environment and what like what kind of difference does that make from just strapping <clears throat> stuff you've done before? Yeah. Uh, so to be honest, challenge for re relevance here. Uh, to your businesses, um, but uh, financial. I'm, I'm curious about your journey, Eric. Doesn't yeah. matter what we do. Yeah, financial services is uh, is a very interesting space, and in that, <clears throat> like back in like 2012, when Eric first had this idea, uh, he he went around to the financial brokers and said like, "Hey, we should do this." And they're like, "So you're gonna like deliver financial services over the internet? You're gonna do like." insurance and mortgages and investments sounds like a bank like what are you gonna do start a bank well of course not and so he just like went around went about his life um because like you can't start a bank that's that's impossible um and then later on like well simple started that was interesting like they seemed to to figure things out and further poking around like they didn't actually like really know what they were doing they just kind of did it they didn't really have a whole bunch of experience or in, in the industry or anything. Um, and uh, so the long and the short of it is uh, the best way to, the best way to start in a regular environment is to avoid regulation. You kind of want to stay on the cusp of regulation as much as you can without actually touching area. You want at least as much of your business as possible to be unregulated and then have the small components which make money be regulated. Uh, so if you look at how technology firms generally approach a regulated environment, usually it's like very much on the fringe. It's like distribution. Uh, there's a there's affiliates, the guys that sit in their sit in their underwear in the basements, uh, and then there's startups which do the exact same thing in an office and wearing suits. Doesn't matter. Like they're still just affiliates, and so like they can drive traffic to a website and get paid 50 cents or $5 or $50 a lead. That's, that describes a lot of the consumer facing startups uh, in, the, in the industry. All the way from, again, uh, women and men in their underwear in the basement to, uh, what is it, Credit Karma. Credit Karma and Borrowell pretty much had the same business model as that, uh, but they're like, venture funded affiliate companies basically. Um, and that is how most people play in the financial services space. Instead of getting their hands dirty with actually like raising funds to, to loan to people or uh, managing people's investments, just kind of act on the periphery. Uh, there's a problem with that um, because life insurance is a good example. Uh, you can send leads to an insurance company to get hand out to their brokers. Uh, and there's several companies like this. Again, it's all just affiliate marketing and they'll get paid between $3 and $50 for a life insurance lead, depending on the likely, likelihood of closing that lead. And then you have Assurance IQ that closed, that, that generated the affiliate traffic and also bought some affiliate traffic and was closing half a million dollars of policies a year 
they sold for a few billion dollars to an American insurance company last year. There's a huge difference in what you can accomplish and just like beyond the distribution end to providing the full stack. Uh, on a life insurance policy, for example, uh, I could get like $5 for handing leads over. Or if you close like, say like $100 a month in premium of life insurance, which would be typically what someone would need. Uh, again, absolutely the best thing for that person, nothing, nothing shady. Uh, that delivers a $1,500 commission. So like $5, or $1,500 and the difference is being able to fulfill the product. Um, so in any case, there's value to like apps actually like opening that door uh, and being not afraid to, to operate in a regulated space. Um, with, uh, who's familiar with Airbnb? Everybody, yeah. <laughs> Everybody, okay. Um, so what's Airbnb's product? Like they have a website and they launch some mobile apps, you know, uh, both they have a mobile app for the guest, they have a mobile app for the host. Uh, but if you ask Brian Chesky, the founder of what their product is, their product is not these digital artifacts, it's the experience somebody has using them either as a host you know, opening up their home to other other people who are strangers and welcoming them into their city, or for a guest to like go to some strange place and feel welcome in someone's home. Um, and that's really how you need to examine this whole like atmosphere of being in a regulated space, whether that's in real estate or in financial services or, or so forth, is what's the entire experience you want to deliver to solve a, a particular problem that person has. Uh, and not weigh yourself down with these limitations. I think the best role for product manager in these cases is to really survey like all the possibilities and then clearly mark out what's possible, what's impossible and we can't do that. And what's just like almost impossible. Uh, and it's the almost impossibles that will probably uh, really stake out your competitive advantage and and uh, make you a going concern if you can figure them out. And be, same as Airbnb, you shouldn't just be focused on the products and feature, the features of the products you're delivering, the artifact. It's what are the different, among all the different aspects of what we can deliver, uh, how can we make those limitations and the almost impossibles work for the client? Uh, which generally means getting out of your comfort zone. So a lot of product managers that have some design experience, they have technology experience. Uh, you should become a lawyer as well. <laughs> like you have compliance people, you have the regulators who will tell you when you're breaking the rules. The regulators, by the way, will not often tell you that you are staying within the rules. They'll just tell you when you are breaking the rules. Um, but if you become a lawyer as well, uh, it opens up this whole new avenue to evaluate possibilities for operating your business. I'll give you some examples for like hardcore examples. This doesn't need to stay theoretical. So with Planswell, uh, we wanted to deliver financial services online to people and be able to place mortgages, insurance, and uh, investments. In order to do, in order to place those products, we needed to set up a mortgage brokerage mortgage brokerage and insurance brokerage and a robo advisor, which as far as the regulators are concerned is the same as a full stack, you know, investment house. The way that uh, well simple did this was they hired like a, somebody who'd never been a portfolio manager before there was an associate portfolio manager and he'd been doing it for a couple of years. Uh, didn't have a whole lot of experience, but, he had the right background in order to apply to be a portfolio manager. And so they just went through that two year portfolio manager process. Uh, what we did is we found this guy, Gordon Higgins, who was a, who had been a portfolio manager for 30 years uh, and said, you know, Higgins investments is a stupid name for a company. Call yourself plans with portfolios. 
and he like really liked what we were doing and he was on board. And so uh, he, he gave his name to his company, Plensville Portfolios, and he became portfolio management company. Now the regulations say like you can't, uh, only a portfolio manager can own a portfolio management company. It can't be owned by some other party. Oh, I guess we need to become a bank. But like in order to follow the regulation, like we need to follow a bank. But actually what we could do is like Gord can own the portfolio management company and we can have this contractual agreement that means that says that we own all the customers uh, and all the revenue goes to us, uh, but enough stays in the company to pay Gord his salary as well as any other support staff he has. And that was completely legal. Now you might think like finding these loopholes uh, would, would elicit like ire from the regulator and it is absolutely the opposite. Um, the, what you should, what you should be doing is like figuring out like what is the regulator's intent and what are the regulations? How do I stay within the intent and within the regulations and can accomplish something good? Um, and then they will completely be on your side. They actually crave innovation when it comes to this stuff. Um, they are not the ones who make the regulation. They are the ones who have to enforce the regulation. Uh, so it's almost like a lot of the times people come to them and it's like, you can, they don't say this out loud, but you can kind of, kind of hear it from their direction. Like, we really want you to be able to do this figure out a way that you can do this that we can say yes to. And they will not tell you that way. They will not advise you. They will actually, uh, the, the Ontario Securities Commission will specifically tell you like, we are, not a, we are not a consultancy. We will not help you. But bring stuff to us and we will, we will rule on it as to whether you, it is compliant. So, so just pause for a second there and explain more about their intention yep. uh, is I you know is partly to uh, improve the consumer experience uh, while providing safety and security to the system and economy, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like compare this to like if you were developing a food product and say that some important regulations were, were missing and there was no regulation that said you couldn't put plastic pellets into the rice and that would be cheaper for you somehow like say that say if that was the case the food regulator is not going to applaud your initiative in like poisoning people um is not the, that does not align with their intent even if there wasn't a regulation there and they will come beat you up uh, but if you're able to, to um and the most common common example in financial services that I see in this is with like uh, multi-level marketing or pyramid scheme models where like there's a the specific regulation that I, that I always hear pitched back to me is like well they didn't like MLMs and pyramid schemes so they made this law which says I need to deliver something of value to the, to the to the customer and the membership in the whole pyramid scheme in the training, that's not actually valuable. So if I deliver also this pen or whatever it is, they have like a million ideas for this to how to go around this law. Uh, if I deliver this other thing, then I'm actually delivering something of value. Like, no, the regulator doesn't want that thing to happen. And they're not going to be on board with whatever way you have of getting around it. Uh, but like in our case, like, yeah, the regulator knows that the existing system only really provides value for people who have millions and millions of dollars to get financial advice. Everyone else is getting a salesperson. And so like, if we could show, if we could make a system that operates within the regulation to deliver the thing that they want for everybody else, they were more than happy to put their stamp on it. That's the difference. Yeah. So, so yeah, so, so maybe to sort of bring this into the context of, you know, the participants on this, this call, 
you know, there are, there are actually some parallels and that's not so much in a regulated environment, which probably doesn't apply quite the same way unless we're talking about, you know, health and safety regulations or something like that. But, but it does apply in terms of uh, sort of multi-level marketplaces where, you know, you have, uh, you have users or consumers, but you also have channels and distribution and you have to understand the, the, the user experience, the journey, you know, the value proposition for each of those, right? And so, so what you've been talking about is there's, there's a value proposition for the regulators as well as for your consumer customers, right? And you have to, you have to be, understand both of those. So, so, so go, so, Ali, uh, yeah. sorry, Lee. I, I was also thinking that, uh, you know, if, you know, my industry that I directly entertain is not regulated, but the members that I sell to are regulated. So I need to understand their regulations, their systems, their process, uh, their way of procuring their, what's important to them, what's not. Uh, so I still need to understand kind of the framework in which my market works. Right. Um, Eric, I also truly believe that as an entrepreneur, it's our, uh, it's our right, our privilege and our requirement to break every law we can, every rule we can, long as it's not criminal. I always say that long as it's not criminal, I don't want to hurt anybody, but the rules of the law, the, the, how people work, how people think we have to challenge these. That's the whole point of an entrepreneur. If we're following what everybody else does, like one of the reasons I joined this call today, Eric, is that you're entering, you entered into a very competitive commoditized market financial uh, advisor industry, right? And yet mm -hmm. you were able to find a, a niche within it that was uh, exciting and, and meaningful, uh, not only to the end users, but financially as well, both. Um, that's what I was curious about because that's very tough. I always question, why is there another burger joint? Like, why do we need another burger joint, right? But they always pop up, not these days, but normally, right? So that, that's kind of why I was here was why, you know, the journey of why you, uh, you, you started, we, we, we were not a bank, but then you realized we kind of have to look like a bank or act like a bank, right? So, yeah. you know, you, you're getting sucked into the norm, but you're still resisting it by coming up with some sort of innovation or creative thinking. Yeah, I'll comment directly on that and then indirectly. And I have a Zurich mug. This is, <laughs> this is for you. Very nice. Um, so like, yeah, you do have Travis Kalanick's approach, uh, several other companies which are like really pushing the boundaries. Uh, and then you have companies that hurt people. Mm. So like Travis Kalanick was like breaking laws and paying fines for it. Facebook was doing this, has been doing the same thing and uh, questionable whether they should or should not be doing that. I'm not, I'm not going to judge. Um, certainly not my mission in life to like, go break laws. Uh, but then you have the people who are like marketing binary options. You have Canadians and Israelis who have been caught up in these schemes mm. or defrauding people of yeah, that's hundreds good. of millions of dollars. Uh, like one is very obviously hurting people, but like there's entrepreneurs who are profiting from it. Uh, so often like regulations are there for a reason. Yeah. Uh, so I don't mean breaking laws, but breaking the rules, kind of breaking the, uh, the known frameworks of how we should all work and operate and who is a financial advisor, how do they work? You know, I, I want to challenge those type of, uh, that, that type of thinking. That's what I meant. Well, it's I don't necessarily want to break laws to hurt people. That, 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 absolutely not. There is more relativism <clears throat> though, because like a lot of people in the world feel that gambling is perfectly okay but the US government especially says like, you cannot operate online gambling to American citizens. Mm -hmm. And yet a whole bunch of services do that. And there's some more relativism as to whether they should or not. And a very firm aspect of that, that if they ever find themselves on US soil, they're being arrested and put in jail for 20 years. Yeah. So like there, any, any law that exists there's going to be some more relativism as, as opposed to that, that makes it unclear as to whether you'd be right or wrong in breaking that law. So tread carefully. Yeah, for sure. Um, but your other point about like being able to understand what your industrial <clears throat> customers are facing with their regulation. Uh, I absolutely see the benefit as you do 
to actually understanding it better than they do. If you can walk in and teach them like full challenger sales process, uh, educating them about how they can more effectively run, run their business within the regulation uh, and be more effective for their, for their customers, uh, they will buy your product every time and they'll buy it immediately. Uh, that's what we found with Planswell as we started going to international insurance companies and teaching them about distribution to consumers under, under new regulation and still being effective, being far more effective than they ever have been. Right. What normally would be a two-year sales cycle, we were closing, again, large international insurance companies within a few months. Yeah, that's huge. Um, one of the aspects was, was like, as an example, GDPR. Everyone's heard of GDPR? Uh, I don't even remember what it stands for. But it's uh, the European privacy law. And it's the reason why Google and Facebook have each been fined hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars, um, along with tax, tax code violations. But a lot of it has been privacy. Um, and uh, what you have is a, an industry which traditionally had a sales agent in, in, the, in the living room handing a paper form across to a customer and saying like, I fill this in for you, just sign there. And there's like this mountain of small print and the sales agent is trained to just say, oh yeah, 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 ignore all that. It just says it's all good. Sign here. Uh, and what, uh, what their compliance department is not familiar with is bringing that experience online. So what they do is they take that paper form and they put it online. And what happens? Nobody does it. So where you used to have this simple form that just said like, put your name and email address and phone number here and one of our sales agents will call you. Uh, and they were never great at this, but like some people would go online and they would fill that in and the agent would call them. Now the form looks like those three fields and then a mountain of small print saying, everything we did before we can still do with like check boxes at each of them, nobody would fill this out. And it wasn't com the compliance department's job to go back and check on their growth statistics. <clears throat> their job is not marketing. It's like, well, we did our job, we're done here. That thing is, that thing's taken care of. Uh, the marketing team is not working with the compliance team, is not working with the sales team. And so when we were primarily working with the the sales and distribution team. And so when we showed them like our consumer facing onboarding tool, uh, we negotiated on a lot of the different aspects of financial planning and they signed off on everything. And just before we signed the contract, they said, oh yeah, yeah. and by the way, just our compliance team, they just need to put this little thing in and we're done. And the little thing was absolutely on the email submit page. There was three paragraphs of text uh, on a, each about this size with a checkbox. Now you put one paragraph of text with a checkbox, it actually doubles your acquisition cost. <clears throat> and putting three checkboxes that need to be checked off with mountains of text meant that nobody was gonna complete that form and we wouldn't be able to deliver any new customers to them. Uh, but there's value in knowing the regulations better than they do. Because all their compliance did was take what was on the paper form saying like every, you know, on the paper form, that small print gave us carte blanche to do anything we wanted. And so now we've, we've interpreted the GDPR rules and this is the text which will allow us to do anything we want. But like the whole point of GDPR was not to allow companies to do whatever they want with your data, but to give people control of the data. And so, studying GDPR and knowing GDPR and understanding it, uh, we were able to we were able to go back to them instead of like this huge body of text, we were able to go back to them with three sentences. Say like, this is, these three sentences clearly delineate to people who's gonna have their data, what's gonna be done with it, 
uh, and and what they can do to affect change in that. Uh, and it was like literally like this big, three short sentences which anybody could read. Uh, the first sentence was, we take your data privacy seriously. And then the rest of it was actually uh, prefaced by, our lawyers asked us to say. Now nobody reads anything after our lawyers asked us to say. But to a regulator, completely innocuous. But to a product manager, to especially like a growth product manager, you look at that like everybody's going to ignore everything after that, uh, and so everyone's just going to click the button. Uh, are checkboxes required by GDPR? No. No. If you if you have like readable text that that a person could reasonably consume, you don't need a checkbox, and so you don't have that UI component which makes trips people up. Uh, and uh, anyway, the sales team ran this by their legal and got approval for it and their minds were blown. Uh, they owed us all the loyalty in the world. We just saved their lives. The sales team came back and said like, we're going we're gonna to use this text now that's approved on everything. Uh, so we just made all of their efforts more effective uh, and we definitely got the sale. We got it really easily. And that was with a European international insurance company, which that's like the hardest place to get, get deals signed on the distribution side right now. That's, that's great, great insight, Eric. I, and I think what, you know, what it, what it, what it, uh, the way I relate to it is that, you know, I see product, a product manager's job and expertise. And in fact, you know, the way that translates to entrepreneurs and founders who are the de facto product managers is to be a problem solver, right? Yep. And, the way, and the way you approach problems is, is through understanding that user experience, that user's, the buyer's journey, whatever it is, not as a whole value proposition, which is important, of course, but in the incremental pieces that become stumbling blocks or barriers to successfully completing what you're trying to complete. Right. Yeah. And so as a product person, when you're, you know, we think of product managers as, you know, figuring out what features go in the product. But in fact, over the last, you know, decade, product managers paradigm and perspective has completely shifted to not what features, but what problems are we solving? Right. And so you run into a problem like that. Okay we identify that there's a barrier to people completing that form or signing up. Now, how can we understand what, what they're trying to achieve and what our business is trying to achieve and how can we innovate, right? Change our perspective, get a new view on it, whatever, test different things, experiment with different things to come up with something that solves the problem. You know? Yeah. And the product role is so important for that. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, like you think about all the other people in the organization, growth, growth is not a good negotiator. Like any, anybody on, on in growth marketing, it's just going to go ahead and as Rakesh was saying, like break the rules. Uh, and that's not going to fly with enterprise client. Uh, marketing, uh, they're going to say like, oh, that's what compliance said. Uh, that's what we'll do. Compliance, they're not focused on growth, growth metrics. So like product having overall view of like, this is the experience we're delivering. Uh, and in a small organization being scrappy and figuring out the solutions or in a large organization figuring out what are the gaps on our team, on our team and like having someone figure that out uh, is, is immensely valuable. Um, again, launching on what, what Rakesh was saying, just understanding, like what, especially when your customer is, is an enterprise like understanding what their priorities are and what their actual problems are is essential. Uh, back in 2016, one of my one of the most memorable experiences was uh, being at a private investment conference. And it's 2016, so there's like 50 companies pitching. They're almost all of them marijuana and blockchain. Like that's who's presenting in 2016. Uh, and uh, I remember the keynote address given at the end of the day after these 50 pitches 
was by the CIO or the CTO or the TX, TSX group. And uh, like 20 different solutions had been pitched that day that, that we're hoping that he'd pick them up and, and use them at TSX, you know, all transforming the TSX to operate on blockchain. And uh, I'll never forget, he stood up and said, just, uh, I, I want to walk you through an innovation that we've been focused on for the last three years that we were able to just implement this year, uh, which took the entire team. Uh, we, we moved from three character ticker, ticker symbols to four character ticker symbols. That's the innovation that we implemented this year. And he proceeded to walk us through uh, everything that they needed to change at the TSX with their downstream partners and their upstream partners in order to, in order to affect that change. And it was real. He understood the irony of what he was saying. He wasn't oblivious. Um, but the changes required all through those systems was real. And these companies with their whiz bang pop inventions, calling them innovation, did not understand their customer. And so I, I think just having a better understanding of like what's actually important, what are the problems they're, they're trying to solve is immensely, immensely important for, especially startups who have some limited resources of their own, uh, knowing which battles to fight. So, how, so Eric, how, how did you and, and the other, your, Eric, the other partner, how did you, uh, like, how did you focus on which problems were important? Uh, so I, I think we've actually like, we made tons of mistakes at plans well, and that was the big one of, of a lack of focus on our own problems. Uh, sorry, lack of focus on the right problems. Like we were just trying to solve everything at once and take over every market at once. Um, in fact, we made so many problems and it's a sign of a really good idea in the first place uh, that you can make all the mistakes in the world and still build a real business. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I'd say one of the, one of the big mistakes that we did was uh, focus too much. It stemmed from having some of the wrong investors at the beginning uh, and raising it too high of a valuation that we were forced to focus on revenue before focusing necessarily on product. So the big problem that we could solve and that made us a valuable company uh, was that the insurance company, insurance companies knew that they needed to transform their distribution from people in living rooms to digital distribution over the next 10 years. And they had no idea how to do it. And like, we, we had figured out the first half very early in our business. We had figured out how to, how to get people to create a financial plan, which, which, which would actually be able to recommend them the amount of insurance and get them to consume that financial plan uh, very cheaply and at scale. Like this is, this is was before impossible. Like you, you could never get someone to surrender all their financial details online, but we figured that out. We, and we figured out how to do that in a way that added an extreme amount of value to the consumer. And then after that, sorry, hey, Carol. Eric, I'm very sorry to interrupt you here. I missed the, your last part. You mentioned uh, the insurance company or financial company. Yeah. Uh, they need to do the uh, digital uh, transform to the digital service in the next 10 years. Can you repeat that part? Yeah, absolutely. Sorry. The traditional insurance companies, the yeah. way they distribute Sorry, we're talking about life insurance companies here, not, yeah, yeah. not car and home. Yeah. Uh, life no insurance problem. companies, their business is traditionally distributed by human agents in living rooms uh, selling. Yeah. That is not how they're going to be distributing life insurance products 10 years from now. They mm. know that. And mm. they have no roadmap to get from here to here which means like they might not be around in 10 years. Mm. Um, so okay. that was what made us a valuable company. It was not our revenue, it was not our growth metrics. It was that we could solve this problem. Mm. Uh, and yet, uh, because 
like we were always starved for starved for cash, starved for investment. Um, we had to focus on revenue more than solving that big problem. Um, but Eric, that I guess what's interesting is that 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 wasn't necessarily the problem you started out to solve. Yeah. Right? I mean, you, you, you know, you, Eric's vision, you know, was more around, as we said earlier, democratizing for the consumer at access to financial, you know, resources or advice. And at what point did you realize that there was a sort of different value proposition that was as important or more? So that's where I would say, I would disagree with that. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, our, our initial vision was not to help insurance companies. Like, I think at our, at our most pompous, like we thought like the banks and insurance companies, watch out, we're coming to get you. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, when we started the enterprise model, it wasn't, here's some software you guys can use, go do what you've been doing. Uh, it was, we have figured this out. We have figured out how to do something valuable for consumers in a way that they trust let us replicate plans well within your organization. Now, often with enterprises, when it comes to software, they look at what this consumer focused startup is doing and say, my gosh, this is cutting edge. Let's buy this and take all that's innovative and, and effective about it and make it more like the way we've always done things. And it just drains all the value out of it. Uh, but what we had done is we had actually figured out the consumer side of things. And so what we were actually doing is not just selling software, like here's a subscription, go screw people over. Uh, we were taking what we had delivered to consumers and replicating that valuable distribution channel uh, within insurance companies. And so the vision didn't change just how we, there's a lot more value to be had within an insurance company solving that problem then we could scalably do by like expanding as a financial services company around the world. And did, and did you guys approach it uh, from a, a sort of structured process where you thought about the value chain or, or did it, was it more sort of accidental you happened upon it? Uh, we did not know that this was ins the insurance company's problem to begin with. As soon as we found out, sorry, there's a lot of push and pull in the organization. Uh, and this is where values are extremely important. I can point to several places in the company's history where we'd be at a boardroom or an employee meeting and someone would say something which was, which would advance our business or advance their own interest at the expense of our customer. And the whole room would just shout them down. And so you had, uh, and that was at the very beginning, like starting investment firms really hard. Like, why don't we sell segregated funds? Cause it's better than what most people have now. And like, I just remember the whole room just piling on them. Uh, and the same happened when this enterprise model came up, we had some, we had some enterprise companies come to us uh, with offers. And uh, there were some people that said like, yeah, this is, we'll get some recurring monthly revenue, which will, yeah, they're going to be screwing people over, but we can use that money to do good in the world. Uh, and I just remember the whole room unifying in opposition to those ideas uh, that, that no, like, we're going to do this first. And it was always like, it wasn't altruism necessarily. Uh, it was like, we had values that we wanted to stick to. And, and that, made it clearer to see that if we did that, that will feed us for six months, but then mm -hmm. they will fail and then we'll fail. Mm -hmm. uh, but if we, if we actually take what we've done that's valuable for people and can scale that and deliver that better and uh, to more people, uh, we'll be better and the enterprise will be better and they'll continue to be our customer. And the world will be better. I mean, yeah. our, you know, most, for most of us, you know, our mission is to create some small change, positive change in the world. Right. Yeah. And that's why we do what we do, but we're going to have to wrap up because, because we're out of time, but, but uh, any final questions or thoughts um, uh, from anybody that, uh, you know, on, on what you've heard today or 
uh, you know, what, uh, I, I encourage you to connect with Eric, you know, on LinkedIn or something. Um, Very accessible, happy to help out any way I can. Yeah, yeah. But uh, thank you so much, Eric. I really appreciate your time and your insights on this. It's been, uh, been great to, to see you again and chat. Um, anybody, any final comments before we wrap up? Uh, Eric, I just want to thank you for, um, uh, for, for all the information. It's very inspiring. Pleasure. Good. Yes, thank you very much. I appreciate both uh, Eric and Lee uh, yeah. in this call. So thank you very much, guys. Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, we'll uh, I guess Ryan and, and Kelly, you'll uh, follow up uh, with, uh, with the group and, uh, and let us, everybody know what's, what's coming up in the next month or so. I'm not sure what's happening, but we'll figure out something fun and, uh, and uh, stay healthy, everybody uh, be safe. And, and we'll look forward to seeing you in person as soon as we can. Thank, Thank you. you. And, and Thank as you. usual, I was going to say, as usual, if you have any topics or if there were things you wanted covered, um, Lee is a wealth of knowledge and, uh, and has so many great, uh, great contacts and great ideas. So if there were things that you wanted, please let us know. We'll, uh, I know we'll do our best to get that. We are going to continue, obviously, in June to be online still, where nobody's really certain when we're, we're heading back to things. But um, next week, with people returning to work, we actually have a um, lawyer, Dan Condon. He's uh, an employment and labor law lawyer from Wilson Booklet, and he's going to talk about some of the policies and procedures that you need to have in place for people returning to work. And then on Tuesday next week, actually, sorry, Dan's is from 1 to 2, and then Tuesday next week from 11 till 12, we have... Um, mental health expert coming on talking about some tips for well-being and uh, moving forward kind of through this through this time but sign up on the website and as usual the link will go out the day before great so everybody enjoy the day i know it's supposed to be beautiful today and through the weekend so take advantage of getting outside and getting your gardens done <laughs> yeah yeah thanks eric i'll connect with you on a on separate thread but uh thanks t for taking the time and it was great to meet you rakesh and uh nice to see you carol and peter again yeah. everybody have a good day take care right. thank, thank you, you. Thank you.